All right, guys, if you could open to your assignments, the things you're about to turn into me, those of you who are doing half credit or full credit, and make sure it says your name, the date, the assignment, which is Luke part one or something. Um, what else do we need? That's probably all we need. Um, yeah, so everyone got that? Good, so now we can collect them because all the assignments are awesome. Great formatting, well done. Thank you, excellent. Good, good, excellent. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah your mom sent that note. Great, thank you. Thank you. I will, I sent it to you. My okay. I understand. Printers hate us. Thank you. I do not mind. I do not. Well done, guys. Okay, just from from memory, don't don't look at my notes, and you don't have your notes, but from memory, what are some key facts we know about the Gospel of Luke, the who, what, where, when, why? It's written by Luke. Why do we know that, though? It has, one thing is that it had a medical language. Okay. I've never noticed it much, but... Yes. Written by Luke. Anyone, anyone else have an answer why it's written by Luke? How, why we think it's written by Luke? What was that? It's called Luke. Is it Luke? Call it Luke, or was it called Luke by someone that decided it was written by Luke? It it was not called Luke by Luke, but um, his name got attached to it pretty quickly. Any any remembrance of when it was written? Yes, I think I think people were saying 60s. Um, very good. And then Jesus in the book of Luke. Did anyone notice Jesus in the book of Luke? Yeah. Yeah, what are some things we learned about Jesus in the book of Luke? Very big question. A lot of right answers for this. But what are some things you learn about Jesus in the book of Luke? Born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, born of the Virgin Mary. Um, you get a little bit of that in Matthew's gospel, you get a lot of that in Luke's gospel. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. A lot of parables in Luke. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot of Old Testament references, especially in those opening chapters of Luke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, very good. Um, and then application. Well, we won't do application. All right. So well done, guys. All right. So we all have Bibles, right? Or does anyone need a Bible?
Yeah, so just while I'm talking, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. Um, we won't refer to it for just a few minutes. Um, all right, so we're starting with the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke is a part one, and part two is what? Acts of the Apostles. So Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And actually, it's what he says in the second half of the book of Acts that really tells us why we think Luke wrote both of these volumes. Um, Because that connects Luke and Paul. And then Paul's letters connect... um, uh, We get Luke by name uh, mentioned in Paul's letters. In a big part, uh, one of the ways, if you ever... If you ever get the time or the inclination, sorry, I have a, my own designated dry erase marker. These are supposed to be really good. Um, all right, if you ever get motivated, read Luke and acts together, straight, straight start to finish. I don't mean in one sitting. I just mean, you know, over, over the span of a couple weeks. Try to read Luke straight into Acts. We're going to do that for my class. I'm sorry. Um, so what you notice when you do that is it's all one narrative. So Luke 1 starts with, with what? What's the first thing that, the, the first event, not the introduction, but the first event of Luke 1? You get you get John the Baptist on the scene, and then Acts twenty eight. Do we know what happens in Acts twenty eight? No, we don't. That's all right. You don't need to turn there. Um, Paul is in a prison where Rome. Good answer. He is in a prison in Rome. Um. So the start of the story, Jesus hasn't, hasn't been born yet. End of the story, Jesus has clearly been born. The church has implanted. The gospel is going forth. And Rome, you know, if, you're, um, you, know, if you think of Zechariah and Elizabeth here in Jerusalem, um, Rome is a long way away. And it's a, it's a big, powerful, uh, you know, it would be like if you were born in a really small town in California thinking about Washington, D.C., just this distant place you had never been to. And, and, if, and you go back in time where travel wasn't quite so easy as it is today. You know, distant place, never been to it. And yet it's the, the thing, the city that has this big, powerful influence over everyone and every, everything around me. Um, so the gospel goes to Rome, kind of the end, ends of the earth. Now this gospel, or this, uh, this two-part story, it starts in this, this, uh, this narrative, this plot line, um, obviously, Jesus is gonna is gonna come, and what I did. The reason we do this when you look at Acts one and you look at Luke twenty four, there's almost like a hinge, as if you were publishing two two books, part one and part two, and you wanted to make sure people thought of these as part one and part two. And so the end of Luke 24 and the beginning of Acts 1 basically tell the same story, which is what? Anybody remember that just from their knowledge of the Bible? 
Yeah, the ascension. So Jesus ascends uh, at the end of Luke 24, and Jesus ascends at the beginning of Acts 1. So it tells the same story. There's more detail in Acts 1 um, in some ways about the ascension itself, but it's still basically telling you the same story. So he gets you to here, and then he picks up where he left off here, and then he keeps on going after that. And, of course, you get the church. Pentecost. Um, but it's all these indicators that this is a single story. And so what happens in Acts 28, uh, or not Acts 28, but in Acts, the second half of Acts, it's actually Acts 16. He starts, he starts using uh, the word we. Uh, so he's saying, you know, he did this, they did that. Uh, the disciples did this. Paul did that. Uh, and then, it's, then suddenly at 16, he, he'll start dropping in these places where he says, and then we went here, we went there. Uh, you know, we ministered in, in this city or that city. And uh, I believe it's in Philippi where those references begin. And so the thinking is that Luke is from Philippi and got saved when Paul went to Philippi. And then he joined Luke, or um, then he joined Paul in his ministry uh, from then on out. And so, so from Acts 16 to the end of Acts, you get uh, just a bunch of places where the language switches from he and uh, they to, to we, first person, first person plurals. So he never names himself. Um, so you have that, um, but that puts Luke in Rome with Paul. And what you have, um, uh, you have in places like Colossians 4, uh, where Paul referred, Colossians is written from that Roman house arrest. Um, and actually, Colossians 4 is where you get that phrase, Luke, the beloved physician. So why do, we know that he's, why do we know that Luke is a physician? It's because it's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, which also places Luke with Paul in Rome at that point. So there's only so many, you know, when you're thinking about the we, somebody's traveling with Paul, there's only so many options that, that could be writing the story. Um, but Luke, Luke has kind of risen to the top um, of those options. All right, so that's, that's, a, that's a broad, broad intro to um, Luke-Acts. What is a gospel? The word gospel means, yeah, the word gospel means good news. Always helpful to remember that. If you're sharing the gospel, what do I need to share? What do I not share? Share the thing that's good news. Um, but there's also a gospel. Uh, we talk about the four gospels in our Bible, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we call them Gospels? And the basic reason, actually, or the beginning of the, the usage of that, if you turn to Mark chapter 1, always interesting to compare the beginnings of each of the Gospels. Mark chapter 1, can someone read 1-1? One, one? Mark 1-1. One, one. Yeah, just read it. 
Yeah, the beginning of the gospel, the evangelion in the Greek, the Greek word, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he begins to tell the story of Christ. So he tells the events, the teachings. He gives the crucifixion. He gives the resurrection. Um, he gives, it's, in some ways, it's a biography or a, a, a part of a biography of Jesus' life. It's not the full biography. Uh, because because Mark starts kind of in the middle of the story, starts with John the Baptist. Um, but the reason we call these Gospels is because they tell the good news of Jesus Christ. And what you have in the Gospels is unique. So they are... So we call them history, and why would we call them history? Yeah, it's it's a historical record. Yeah, so you don't want to forget that. So these these are um, it's not history like you open up Wikipedia and, and you look up the uh, French Revolution and get the facts and the the places and the key the key figures about the French Revolution. Also, a historical record. The historical record in the Bible. Uh, has meaning not just for those who are kind of history nerds, but the history that we read about in the Bible is important for everyone everywhere for all time. Um, but it is history. It's historically accurate in its history. But then it's also theology. And don't worry about a really technical definition of theology, but why would we call the Gospels also theology? Theological things, right? Yeah. Yeah, they talk, they talk about God, salvation, um, of course, Christ, sin. You know, all of these theological concepts are in the gospel. So they are clearly not just a Wikipedia entry on the French Revolution. This is theology. It's talking about God. And it's um, it's the Word of God, and so... It's true theology about God. So this is, uh, this is not someone's opinion about what God is like or what it takes to be saved, but this is truth. Um, but there's this other way of thinking about the Gospels. Sometimes the authors of the Gospels are called evangelists uh, because they are, they are preaching and communicating the Gospel. Um, and so there's, you know, so as we read the Gospel of Luke, we get Luke's preaching but in another sense, this is God preaching to you. So th- th- there's nothing impersonal about the Gospels. Even though we, we study them as if they're an, you know, kind of an old book written by an old guy that we will we'll probably meet in heaven, or the new heavens and new earth. So we study them as if they're, they're kind of these old documents. But there's another sense in which the, the the Gospel of Luke is, is God talking to you personally. It's God even preaching to you. you know? And when you're preaching, you're exhorting someone, you're challenging them, you're rebuking them, you're uh, commanding them to do things. Uh, so it's not just a casual, light conversation. Hey, if you get around to it, you might want to cut the grass today. Uh, 
the, the preaching that we have in the Bible is not like that. It's urgent. You know, there's a life and death side to it. Um, so, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's a living word. Uh, you get that phrase in, in Hebrews chapter 4, that uh, uh, the word is living and active. Um, so as you, read, as you read the Bible, you just have to keep telling yourself that. You know, even if you're, you know, you're dozing off because you're tired and you don't understand the, the particular passage you're reading, but every once in a while just, just poke yourself by saying, no, wait a minute, this is God preaching to me. He has something to say to me. Um, it's not the only way he speaks to us, but it is a critical way that he speaks to us. All right, so that's, that's another side to the, what the Gospels are. It's, it's God preaching to us. Um, and in this case, it's preaching Christ to us. You know, the, if, the, if the whole Bible is preaching to us, what's, what's unique about the Gospels is, is the amount of time they spend preaching Christ to us. And then what is their goal? This is from one of the Gospels, John 20, 30, and 31. We'll eventually get to the Gospel of John. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right, so that's, that's true of John's Gospel. It's true of all the Gospels. What do all four of the Gospel writers want you to do as you read this, as you read their book? They want you to see what Jesus did, see the extraordinary life that he lived, the extraordinary teachings, his commands, his, his, his claims of deity. They want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who was promised, the Messiah, and that because you believe in him, you would have life in his name. That's what they all want, um, and that's what the Lord wants for us as well. All right, uh, three quick things why we love Luke. We'll, we'll un- unpack each of these uh, in our study. Sorry. My fans, they're just always chasing me down, always after me. Um, yeah, why we love Luke, uh, three things. One is the birth narratives. They're just great. It's, it's very dramatic. Uh, angels show up, uh, talk to women who don't expect it at all. Uh, you get the story of Mary, which is amazing. You get the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. Um, that's, just, that's just great. It's very rich. And it's only in Luke. Um, so that's one reason we love Luke. The parables, someone mentioned the parables. You get, the, you get the par, uh, for instance, the par, uh, parable of the prodigal son, only in Luke, nowhere else. Uh, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. You get a lot of parables that are only in Luke. Um, so Luke 9 to 19, those chapters... Uh, are Jesus traveling to from Galilee to Jerusalem and just filled with parables. You know, if you have a, a Bible where the words of Christ are in red, there's a lot of red ink on those pages. And then great emphasis on the Holy Spirit, the poor, salvation, salvation to all Gentiles, not just Jews, uh, but a lot of references to the Holy Spirit. So you get uh, lots of references in the first four chapters of the book of Luke, and then that that's going to uh, balloon out um, uh, when we get to the book of Acts. And, um, you know, you can't call the book of Acts uh, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, not just the Acts of the Apostles. All right, so now Luke the author, we've already said some of this evidence from the Bible. We have, we have we've covered all that, so let's just skip that. So the other the other way that we, when you're trying to identify who wrote a book of the, of the Bible, uh, the Two common sources, you look inside the Bible, it, to, to trace the clues, see what you have there. 
And then another common source is, is the church. So what, what did the early church say? Uh, so first and second century, you get references to uh, Luke as the author. Um, and with those old, old witnesses, they, they carry a lot of weight because they're just not that far removed from the original documents. Um, and so, the, um, so Luke, and, Luke was attached to this gospel at a very early year. Uh, so we've said Luke is the beloved, beloved physician. You know, doctors at that time were not quite as sophisticated as doctors today. There were a lot of things they thought then that doctors don't think now. Uh, and yet, still, at, at this time, uh, being a physician would have been a respected profession, and it would, have been, um, it would have been an intelligent person who was in that profession, just like, just like it is true today. So we've said he's a co-laborer with Paul. So he's, he's not just writing about Paul and what Paul did, but he's actually traveling with Paul. So all the kinds of sacrifices that Paul would have made, the, uh, the hardships that had to do with travel in the ancient world, uh, he was a missionary. So Luke sacrificed personally uh, to a great extent to see the gospel advance. And then in terms of the author, Luke, what's distinct about him? Turn to the first four verses of Luke. See, Josh, can you read that? Yes, the first four verses. First four of the Gospel of Luke. This is, uh, we're trying to think about Luke as a, an author. What is distinct about Luke as an author? And so we want to... Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the Holy Spirit and accomplish so much, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, Theophilus. Theophilus. That's right. Certainty. That's right. Theophilus means friend of God, and so there's some uh, question about it whether that's a real person or, um, you know, any reader that that reads the Gospel of Luke, he wants to be a friend of God. So. Uh, is it a kind of person or is it a person itself? Uh, there's evidence for both, actually. Um, but what do you learn about Luke's methods, his interests, and his purpose in these opening four verses? What do you learn about the Gospel of Luke? You can ask it that way. What do you learn about the Gospel of Luke just from... From these opening verses. Probably not writing to Jews, most likely writing to Gentiles. He wanted to have a detailed, orderly account so that people who didn't know the story didn't see it, could understand what happened. Okay, so not writing to the Jews that might have been witnesses to the events? Is that what you mean? Yeah, okay. So he's got a broader audience in mind. That's true. Yeah, that would be that would be accurate and fit what we know from the rest of the gospel. Yeah, what else? What do we learn about the Gospel of Luke just from these opening opening verses? Um, 
Yeah, that's great. So whether it's uh, complete Gospels, you know, he might have in mind the Gospel of, Luke, of Mark, because um, it, it seems like as, as Luke writes Luke, he's referring to the Gospel of Mark. Um, so he might, it could be complete accounts like that. But it could also just be, um, you know, it's not far if you imagine Luke at his desk with all of these, these fragments of, of uh, parchments in front of him. And some of them have, you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son, you know, on a sheet of paper or something like that. And so he's assembling this, this account of Christ based on these existing sources. Some of them are long, some of them are, are snippets. Um, but the key is, um, like Logan said, these are already existing sources. So he's not the source of the information. Um, but he's, he's pulling from other sources. Good. He does highlight the eyewitness piece. So these aren't just random accounts, but these are, uh, these are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and did. And then um, I think we've covered the high, high parts. Well, what about that word accomplished? So in verse 1, he says, these are the things that have been accomplished among us. What's... It doesn't, he doesn't say the things that happened among us. He says the things that have been accomplished. What, what does that word accomplished kind of tell you? Finished. Finished, that's true. They've worked hard themselves on advancing the gospel. Yeah, so you guys are thinking if I do a, a big day of lawn work, I've accomplished something. That's what you're thinking of? Accomplished in that sense? That's true. There's another, there's another meaning to accomplished um, that points to something slightly different. Yeah, planned, um, and it's, it's, it's fulfilling something that, that was promised or anticipated. Uh, so, you, in other words, this, it's, a, it's a subtle hint that what Luke is doing is tying the events about Christ to the Old Testament and what, what came before. Then last thing, and, and, and as you read Luke, it's really clear that he's doing that. And then last thing in verse 4, uh, what, is, what is the purpose? You may have certainty in the, the gospel and the life of Jesus. Yes, certainty. So you've, you know, you've heard these, 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 uh, these stories, you've heard about Jesus in maybe some vague or imprecise way. I want you to have certainty concerning these things. And so I'm going to give you a very orderly account. So carefully written, uh, historical, orderly account. And when you get to um, the beginning of the book of Acts, he has another introduction, which is, it sounds very similar to that one, uh, where he's, you can tell he's picking up the story. He's a, he's a well-trained historian. He's a skillful author. And so that's a, that's a formal way of, of writing history, is you have kind of an elaborate introduction like that. All right, so that's the author Luke as a historian. We've talked about him as an evangelist. He wants you to have certainty in your faith. Um, then Luke the theologian. Um, yeah, Luke the theologian. We'll just we'll we'll do it this way. Um, Um, 
can't spell all of a sudden. Yeah, so Luke the theologian is very interested in this thing called the history of redemption uh, or the history of salvation or salvation history. Uh, it's, uh, or the storyline of the Bible, it's sometimes called, you know, if you, if you start at the beginning of your Bible, you get, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and then quickly thereafter, you get Adam. And then, then this, this story progresses. You get to final judgment, and it keeps going past final judgment, but it does go to final judgment. And so what you have in the book of Luke is a kind of a keen interest in this, un, this developing story in the Bible. And so you get mentions of uh, Abraham, a lot of Abraham. You get a lot of Moses. You get a lot of David. Obviously, you get a lot of Christ. You get a lot of church when you get to the book of Acts. And then you get a lot of prophecies that have to do with all this stuff in here. And so Luke kind of thinks in that big, linear, um, progressive kind of way. And so just know that. You're not going to be tested on it, but just know that. So as you read, you're going to see him connecting back to these other figures in the Old Testament often. Not every figure in the Old Testament, but certain figures a lot. Moses, like I said, Abraham, Moses, David pop up continually in, in Luke and Acts. All right, so number five on page 15. Luke is a synoptic gospel. Anybody ever heard that phrase, synoptic gospel? Maybe? Yeah. Yes? This is kind of complicated stuff, but we're going we're gonna to approach it at a kind of a simple level. All right, so you get a weird word, synoptic, which comes from an old Greek word, which means seeing together. So we'll do our, we'll do our own little synoptic situation. So... Kirsten will be will be one. Uh, Cortland will be two. Um, uh, Anna, you'd be three. We'll just do three. All right. So I want you to write in one sentence what has happened so far in class. In one sentence, what has happened in class and. We've been in class 40 minutes. What has happened? Yeah, actually write it down. Only get one sentence.
It's hard to write under pressure, isn't it? You guys good? All right. All right, so this is our, this is, we're stepping into the synoptic problem here. And so Cortland will be our Matthew. So I got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Cortland, you be Matthew. What do you, what do you got, Matthew? Just go ahead and read what you have there. It's okay. Forget it. Just, just read what you have, Cortland. What was that? The background of the Gospel of Luke. The background of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so we've heard about the gospel, the background of the Gospel of Luke. All right. Is he right? He's right. Anna. I think we've discussed the Gospel of Luke and its importance. Is she right? Yeah, so, so, so Corlin emphasized background. She emphasized importance of the Gospel of Luke. Kirsten. <laughs> yeah, so that's <laughs> it was one. Yeah. Um, so that's unique to the class, right? So um, what you guys talked about that would fit if uh, well on a Sunday morning there could be a situation where there was a uh, Sunday morning. Doesn't mean it's wrong, just different. So Kirsten's hit the more factual. Uh, you know, kind of what's unique about this thing today that we're doing, um, we're in a class. Is she right or is she wrong? And so Anna was right. Did we say that Anna was right? Yeah. So all three of them are right. They're just giving you different information, right? So when you, when you think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them are, are telling a very similar story. It's not just the, the general story of Jesus. You know, John is giving you the general story of Jesus as well. Um, we'll, we'll compare the synoptics in John in just a second. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell their story in a very similar way. And the key, with what, the key thing with what they do is their story starts up here in Galilee. So the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, um, Nazareth, all those things are, are cities in the north. Uh, so if you have a if you have a maps in the, in the background that, that give you the give you the the map of Jesus's life and ministry, Galilee is up in the north, and then they they follow the uh, um, Jordan River down to the area near Jerusalem. So in Jer- Jesus is crucified at Jerusalem. He's resurrected in Jerusalem, um, and then um, so you get this kind of north to south. It's a geographical orientation. When John tells his story, when you go to the Gospel of John, it's chronological. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem a lot of times in the Gospel of John, many times. Um, And Jesus is a, 
is a faithful Jew. He's the Messiah, but he's also a faithful Jew, right? So it makes sense that he would go to Jerusalem a lot of times because they have these major festivals and feasts where you're supposed to go to Jerusalem because God commanded them to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, so you get the Passover, you get uh, the day of uh, the Feast of um, uh, First Fruits, Pentecost. You get uh, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Weeks um, in the fall of the year. So those several times a year. Um, and the Feast of Dedication, uh, you get that uh, in the Gospel of, of John. And so Jesus continues to go to Jerusalem. And so it's a pretty straightforward, that word is chronological, by the way. Um, it's a pretty straightforward chronological telling of the story. So it doesn't contradict a geographical telling of the story, but it's just a very different approach. And so why do we have a geographical uh, approach in three of the synoptics? And the reason is the Gospel of Mark. Anybody remember from our sermons uh, the, the, the kind of the source behind the Gospel of Mark? Peter. Yeah, Peter. So in some ways, Mark is putting Peter's thoughts and reflections and eyewitness accounts on on paper. But Mark is written first, um, and he's the one who organizes his gospel in this Galilee to Jerusalem approach. And then what happens after that is Luke and Matthew come along. Obviously, Matthew is one of the disciples. Um, So he didn't come along. He was there the whole time. Uh, Luke writes as well. And so they both have the Gospel of Luke, or sorry, the Gospel of Mark in front of them as they write. So tons of the Gospel of Mark finds its way into Matthew. I read today, I think 90% of Mark finds its way into the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, when it comes to Luke, it's a, it's a smaller percentage. I think it, the percentage was like 55% of Mark finds its way into the Gospel of Luke. And then these two guys have other materials which don't quite fit. Um, you know, you want, if you want to say that Matthew borrowed from Luke, it's hard to make that case. If you want to say that Luke borrowed from Matthew directly, as if he had the Gospel of Matthew in front of him, it's hard to make that case. So it does seem like there's this um, other material out there that they had access to. Um, gospel fragments, you might, you might think of it that way. Um, and it seems like they both pulled from that. So between Mark and Q, or whatever it's called, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of speculation on because there's no definitive evidence on, on what happened. But it seems like there's another source, that, or source of materials that they had access to. Um, let, me, let me stop there. Any questions on that? I threw a lot of... I threw a lot of stuff. There's been a, uh, tons of research done on all these on all these issues, um, and some guys obviously would, would very much disagree with the basic framework we've set up here. But uh, this would be Carson and Moo, who did who did your New Testament introduction. They would they would take this approach, and I think it's a very sound approach. Um, what's interesting in the kind of the history of tradition, history of interpretation, is it used to be thought that Mark did not get a lot of uh, a lot of good props because they assumed that Matthew was first. The early, a lot of, you know, not in the very, very early church, but, you know, if you go to like Augustine, Augustine would have assumed that Matthew was first, this great, you know, towering gospel, and that Mark came along afterwards and kind of summarized parts of Matthew, um, which 
you know, if, if you think of if Mark as just a summary of Matthew, it's not going to get a lot of respect, right? But then over time, uh, it was, uh, it's been shown that, that that actually doesn't work. What, what does work is if Mark was first and early, and then Matthew, Matthew gets his basic approach from Mark, but Matthew was there. He's an eyewitness, and so he adds, a, adds much more material. Um, but this, this whole topic is, is kind of the, what you get with the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they are seeing things together just like we did our little experiment, and we, we show that three different witnesses can tell something in a very different way and yet all be 100% true. All, all three of you, you guys were 100% accurate in your telling of the story of what happened in class. Um, so you get the same thing with the synoptics. All right, any questions on that? It, we'll, we'll come back to it here and there. All right, so that's Luke as a synoptic. The outline of Luke, so I'm on page 16 now. You get the prologue. We've, we've already read the prologue. Uh, and then you get, we'll call it the birth and preparation of the Christ. So by the time you get to 413, Jesus is in, is, is, has entered into his ministry. So he's not even born in chapter 1. You get to 413, and he's, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted and prevailed, and then he's being launched out into his ministry, his public ministry. And then uh, four, 14 to 950, that's the Galilean ministry. So take, because it's ministry that takes place in Galilee, it's a very sophisticated way to title that. So that's the Galilean ministry. And when you get, when you get to the um, when you get into chapter nine, uh, you get Peter's declaration that you are the Christ. Um, you get the transfiguration; Jesus appears before them, and then you get this turn where Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. Um, and so, from nine fifty one to nineteen twenty seven, you get the journey to Jerusalem, the travel narrative. It's sometimes called. Lots of words in red, lots of teaching by Jesus, lots of parables. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. So the whole middle part of Luke is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. He's teaching, um, he's, he's doing miracles. A lot of things are happening, but he's basically on his way to Jerusalem. And then you get to 1928, um, and that's the, the, the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, lots of celebration, lots of fanfare. Um, it's hard to say exactly what they were expecting to happen, but it seems like they were expecting good things to happen. But that's that's on Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then a week, well, less than a week. On that Friday, Jesus is crucified. You know, their, their hopes are dashed. Their expectations are shattered. This is not what they saw coming. They expected Jesus to somehow or another topple the Romans, bring in a new age of dominance for Israel, and the, it seemed like the exact opposite happened. Um, so that's Jerusalem ministry. Um, and then the last several chapters are the, the cross, the resurrection, and then what happens after the resurrection, the resurrection appearances. Uh, so Luke has, a, has some great scenes that take place after the resurrection. All right, so that's a flyover of, of Luke. So we have 20 minutes, and we'll, we'll, we'll just see how far we go here. So, we've, so let's go into the contents in more detail. So you get the prologue, which we've already covered. In terms of the birth and preparation of the Christ, in some ways, this, 
this part of Luke is answering the question, who is Jesus? Uh, you know, Jesus, remember Jesus is just a Greek, the Greek word for the Hebrew uh, Joshua. Um, and so, and Joshua means the Lord saves. So there would have been a lot of little Joshua's running around uh, um, Bethlehem or Nazareth or Capernaum, all the places where Jesus uh, was at, so at one point or another. There would have been a lot of Joshua's. So the fact that his, his name is Joshua or, you know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't tell us anything. Um, and so in some ways, these early chapters are saying, well, who is this particular Joshua? Who is this particular Jesus? What's special about him? And so the birth narratives announce in these very dramatic ways what is special about this, this Jesus. All right, so now we're in Luke 1. And if you, if you just look at your um, kind of the headings you have in your Bible, Luke 1 and Luke 2, is there any kind of pattern you notice? And if you don't have headings in your Bible, I'm sorry. Yet another chance in your life to feel left out. Ugh. Uh, okay, so the, which pattern are you accenting there? The foretelling and then the, com, and the happening? All right, so you get something foretold and then something happening. That's definitely a pattern there. What else about the pattern that you observe? Um, there's two people, but I was told they're going to have a kid when I thought it was impossible. Elizabeth and Mary? Yeah. By angels. Actually, Zachariah's told and then Mary's told. By angels, that's true. Yes. And the two people told were past song. Yes. Who were those two people? Well, sorry, the, the children. Who are the children born? John. Yeah, John. And so the birth of... Now, you would think, given what a big deal Jesus is, he would be announced first. It's, in fact, not true, is it? So John is announced first, and then there's the announcement to Mary to, about Jesus. And then who's born first? John is born first, and then Jesus is born. And so you get, um, so that John, Jesus, John, Jesus pattern. So it's, uh, John is first, but, but, this, but the greater one is Jesus. You know, John, John's born, but the greater one born is Jesus. Um, so there's kind of lesser to greater. You get that, that pattern in there. Um, so John is great. He's the greatest among, women, uh, among those who are born to women. So he's, he is the... In some ways, if you think of him as an Old Testament guy, he's kind of the last Old Testament guy because after him is Jesus, and you get the New, Te- the New Testament, the New Covenant. So in some ways, there's a sense in which John is actually the greatest of the Old Testament figures, but he, but he also crosses over into the New Testament because he, because he follows Christ as his Messiah. Um, but in terms of this lesser to the greater, um, you can think also of the details of John's birth. What was special about John's birth? He was 
Yeah, so in the womb, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That is special. That's true. But in terms of the, the physical side of John's birth, what is special about John's birth? He was born in Elizabeth's old age. At that time, that was, that's possible. Unlikely. Very unlikely situation. Elizabeth is old. But then you get to the, so that's the lesser. It's still miraculous, still wonderful. Um, you get some Old Testament situations where that happens, right? Um, so Abraham and Sarah, that happens. But when you get to Jesus, the physical improbability of being born with no husband at all, zero. You know, uh, how likely is this to happen? Absolutely impossible, apart from you know divine activity. And so that's that's a greater miracle. So John is a great miracle, but Jesus the greater miracle. And so you get that lesser to greater throughout. Um, they do both have songs attached to them. Um, so Mary sings the. Uh, her song, and then Zechariah, uh, not a song, but a prophecy, a very rich and wonderful prophecy. Um, yeah, you get the Christmas story, which is wonderful, but we'll we'll wait wait on that till Christmas. But you get the presentation in the temple. So Jesus is born in chapter two. He he comes. He's a He's born to a good Jewish family, so you circumcise your, your son on the eighth day because he's from a good Jewish family. Um, you do that at the temple. Um, interesting detail, though, when you get to Luke 2, 22. So this is the actual presentation. So he goes to the temple, and then it says in verse 24, actually, so when he's presented, so they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, that might seem like just a random Old Testament quotation, but what you learn when you go back to the Old Testament is that there were certain sacrifices appropriate if you had, if you had wealth. And if you didn't have wealth, there was a second tier of offering you could give in this situation. And if you, didn't, if you had really no wealth at all, just minimal wealth, well, then you could offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so that de- what that detail tells us is that Jesus was born to poor parents. They were not the wealthy elite. And what is, what is ironic, unexpected about that, given, given who Jesus is? Yeah, so if the creator of the world is going to be born somewhere, what would be a fitting place for him to be born? It's, it's in an earthly situation, but what would be a fitting place for him to be born? Yeah, palace surrounded by great fanfare, uh, international celebration, uh, gold and wealth and treasure thrown upon him. You know, thousands are called upon to make music and write songs and tell the tale because of, of this amazing event. But... That isn't what happened. Jesus was born to two poor parents who, who were righteous. They were, they were a man and a woman of integrity, and they're impressive in that. But their integrity was an integrity that you know, God would revere and respect, not, not the great nations of the earth. Yeah, in fact, you know, the, the birth story starts uh, you know, in 2, chapter 1. Um, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1 starts with the mention of Caesar Augustus, you know, mighty, powerful, um, 
had international influence. You know, I say it and it happens a thousand miles away. People die or they live or whatever, uh, according to my word. So he, he, he says, I want there to be a census. I want to, I want to count the number of people in my, uh, under my domain and I want them to be taxed accordingly. And so that census happens. And of course, that's how Jesus ends up being born in Bethlehem. And so you think it would be, it would be fitting for Jesus to be born there, you know, in the palace of Caesar. Um, and yet that's not at all what happened. He's born in a manger to two poor parents that could only uh, fittingly offer a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons uh, when he's presented. And then you skip down a little bit to uh, the prophecy of Simeon in 2.28. So, he, so Jesus is presented in the temple. And so Simeon is there. He's a righteous man. He's... He's a man of faith. He's expecting God to do something wonderful, even in his day. Um, so he comes to the temple, and he takes the baby Jesus, who's eight days old at this point, and lifts him up. And then he speaks this prophecy in 229 to 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel great little prophecy and it's in the gospel of luke and in luke acts that prophecy is actually um it's kind of like a pair of lenses so that we can see what is going to happen see what luke is doing in these two volumes so if you look at verse 32 what do we learn about christ verse 32 there so memories holding the baby jesus and he's saying this this is the salvation that you've prepared. He's saying this is a light for, you know, this person is a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What does that tell us about Christ? That maybe was unexpected, maybe would have shocked the Jews a bit. To the Gentiles? Yeah. So this revelation, this thing that came from God, this, this new act of God, isn't just for the, the nation of Israel, also for the Gentiles. Um, and, and throughout Luke and, and into Acts, you get, you get time after time after time where uh, the Gentiles are brought into the salvation offered uh, to Israel. What you actually get is this pattern of to the Jew first and then the Greek. So Paul in, in Romans 1 says that that his, his, his apostolic ministry was to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And that is the pattern throughout Acts. So Paul's going to, you know, if he goes to a city, he's going to go to the synagogue. He's going to go to the Jews who are praying. Um, he's going to preach the gospel to them. And if they receive him, great. He's going he's to continue in the synagogue. But typically what happened is they would not receive him. They would be offended by his message, maybe kick him out, maybe even stone him. And so then he would turn to the Gentiles and then he would preach to the Gentiles. And so it's, um, it's a very vivid picture of God's, um, the, in some ways, the story of God's salvation. It was to the Jew first and then to the, to the Gentiles. So we, we recognize that we are Gentiles. You know, we've been brought into this promise made to the nation of Israel. And so when you get to, oops, gone. Um, when you get to Acts 28, you know, we started Luke 1 and we went all the way to Acts 28. When you get to Acts 28 and Paul is preaching in Rome in, under house arrest, 
He invites the Jews to come and, and hear what he has to say. The Jews come and hear what he has to say. He appeals to them. You know, all, the image is kind of all day he's appealing to them, and they, they just reject it. They won't hear it. And so he finally just basically says, you know, God has judged you and is, has extended his promises and grace to the, to the Gentiles. So, yeah, light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Uh, 10.05, what do we want to say? Turn to 4.18. So he said Jesus comes on the scene uh, at the end of 4.13. Um, he's, he's prepared for his ministry. You know, who is this Jesus? He is the Son of God. Who is this Jesus? He is the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament. And so when you get to 4.14, he begins to actually minister to in, in this public manner. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, returned from his 40 days of temptation by Satan, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. All right, so that's, that's the beginning of his ministry. In the power of the Spirit, he is sent out by the Lord. The first thing he does is recorded here is he goes to Nazareth. Uh, it's a city up in that that northern area around the Sea of Galilee, um, where he where he grew up actually. So he came to Nazareth where he had been sorry where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. You know he's a, he's a good Jewish boy. He's been faithful to attend uh, the synagogue on on the Sabbath. He's heard the men stand up and, and read the Old Testament you know, every week of his life. He's, he's heard their prayers, their teachings, their, their reflection. Um, and so on this particular day, he has enough um, respect among the community that, that the scroll is actually given to him. And he's, he's going to stand up and he's going to read. It happens to be Isaiah, you know, quote unquote, happened to be Isaiah. So he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he reads this excerpt from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Very normal thing to do. And, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him because it would have been a normal thing for after you read it to then explain it, to to basically give a sermon on that text. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a great little moment. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, so now let's go back to that 418 and 19 Isaiah prophecy. And you don't want to read it like, um, in this moment, Jesus has done everything in the prophecy. But... um, well, in a sense, he has because actually, what the what the well, uh, let me just I'll just let you wrestle with this. All right, so Jesus has told us that the scripture has been fulfilled. What has been fulfilled from this text thus far? Yeah, the spirit of the Lord. Yeah, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and He's anointed. 
Now, we, we, we know that already because we know from 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. We know this already because in 3.16, he's baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. So he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. What is he anointed to do? Yeah, all those things that follow. To proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A lot of proclaiming there. But when you think about Jesus' ministry, um, what do you think of when you think of proclaiming good news to the poor? Clearly he does that. But what do you, what, what do you think of? Good news to the poor. Yeah, salvation is the ultimate good news, and poor is poor in spirit, not just poor monetarily. So yeah, it's, it's the best news to those who need it the most. He proclaims that. He is that, in fact. What about liberty to the captives? In what way, if you think of liberty to the captives, what comes to mind from Jesus' ministry? Yeah, demon possession is a great, that's a, um, yeah, a great parallel to that idea of being uh, set free. Um, because when you read about some of the really horrific uh, demon possessions, it's clear this is a person who is imprisoned and bound up by this, uh, by this demonized life. Um, and so that when they're free, they're clearly free in this beautiful, wonderful way. What other kinds of freedom, liberty, do you see in the, in the ministry of Christ? Yeah, the freedom of forgiveness. Yeah, forgiven sin. Your conscience is free, set free. Your enslavement to sin, uh, you're set free from that. Yeah, there is definitely a liberty that we have as Christians that a non-Christian simply does not have. Sight to the blind, that's a pretty clear one. At a narrow level, obviously he brings sight to blind people. But what's another way that you might broaden that idea of sight to the blind? Spiritually blind? Yeah. yeah, that's a good thought. Um, what's another, in terms of the physical side of being sight, bringing sight to the blind, um, what's another way that that idea gets fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus? Yeah, all the physical miracles he does. Yeah, so raising people from the dead, clearly, but healings. You know, healings is a way that, uh, it's not just healing blindness, it's healing all kinds of, you know, paralysis, all kinds of different physical ailments. And then he goes back to liberty for those who are oppressed. Oppressed is a little different than imprisoned. Oppressed is there's a, there's a person who's oppressing you. Um, you know, you think of a slave with a terrible master. You're oppressed by that master. Um, you think of um, at, that, at this time, the Jews who would have felt oppressed by the Romans in different ways. Um, and so Jesus sets people free, brings liberty to people who are oppressed. Sometimes, sometimes it's giving you a new situation, it's changing your situation, so you're actually no longer being oppressed by the person. Sometimes it's just you don't feel oppressed. Yes, I'm a slave with a terrible master. However, I have a master, a greater master in heaven, and I am free in him even if I am you know, being oppressed in this earthly way by my earthly master. 
So that kind of liberty. And he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. So God's blessing on people who do not deserve it. So there's a, you know, there's this, there's this welcoming side of Christ. Um, he's seeking and saving the lost. He's inviting people to come to him and not telling them to stay away because they're guilty and unfit. He's telling them, no, come near. Come near to the Lord. It's like the prodigal son um, who's, who doesn't deserve it, and yet the, the father in the prodigal son runs to the son. Uh, so the father being God in that parable, this powerful picture of grace and acceptance and love and forgiveness that we have in Christ. So this, this is one of those places where there's a prophecy being fulfilled, and it's also Luke as a skillful author, basically in a very short way describing what the ministry of Jesus is. So these verses are encapsulating uh, the ministry of Christ in a way that you're just, you're, you, can, you can just draw lines between this passage and all of these events in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, not distant, distantly related things, but very direct lines uh, in his ministry. And so this, that's Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and then also um, ministering in these just wonderful ways. All right, so we got to chapter 4. Not bad. So we'll stop there and we'll pick it up next time at, chap- at this verse and we'll finish the Gospel of Luke. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.